to be called by you, to be saved by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, to be filled with your Spirit, to live lives worthy of your calling while we're here, desperately wanting to live lives that bring you glory and honor in the midst of a world that rejects you. Lord, we are deeply, deeply grateful for who you are and what you have done for us. And may we, in response to that, be servants worthy of your calling. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So it was about six weeks ago that I finally uh, finished a book about my early childhood. Uh, literally uh, 30 years in the making. And uh, it gave me a real sense of peace. It was a very cathartic experience writing a, about this. My children would know more about me than I could have otherwise uh, told them. It was easier to write some things than to sit and talk some things. But I wanted to tell them about my life and, and uh, let them know that the cycle of abuse stopped with me. Barb edited it, and we both felt uh, the words that I wrote were all true. Uh, they were as kind as they could be and, as, uh, and necessary. And so I submitted it to a Christian publisher to serve as a pathway forward for people to find Jesus Christ who had suffered difficult childhoods. So last Wednesday, I heard back from the publisher. Without substantial revision, they would not publish the book. It was too violent, too gory, and too, of all things, unchristian. I was mainly upset by one issue that they pointed out. I will quote this so as not to misrepresent it. Content does not meet our publishing goals. We ask that our authors follow certain editorial standards in order to stay true to our foundation of promoting Christian content. We acknowledge that all Christians fall short of God's standards, but we want to promote communicators who are committed to living in obedience to God's revealed will. We want to promote communicators who walk the talk. The following content should be revised to ensure that it aligns with Christian values and morality. Now that stung. <laughs> My actual life did not promote Christian content. Uh, pardon my irritation, but thank you, Captain Obvious. My childhood, in fact, did not meet Christian values and morality. That's why I wrote the book. The book does not meet their Christian standards. So at first I was stunned, and then I was angry. Uh, this is an autobiographical work, and everything in it I experienced firsthand. 
And it reminded me of how when I became a believer, when I was in the army, uh, one day at a young adults uh, group, I offered praise to God that I had only sworn seven times that day. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. Oh, my. They looked at me like I was from outer space. There's a sinner in our midst. What shall we do? I learned that you don't share real life in the church that day. One would think that over 45 years later that would have changed, but I guess not. My first instinct was to torch them by saying that, in fact, they were the ones who were not behaving in a Christian manner. Why deprive adult children of abuse, a pathway to find Jesus Christ? How can those who have genuinely suffered harm think that they can get help from someone where you can't even speak the truth and who has suffered similar injuries and yet has seen the grace of God and that God can, in fact, redeem the irredeemable? But then I reflected, this is the pesky thing about reading Scripture I reflected on the message that, in fact, I'm preaching now, today. So I began to think, and you'll see how this makes sense in just a moment. So I thought, you know what? It's their business. It's, it's not mine. I went to this Christian publishing company. They did not come to me. They have their standards, and that's fine. I didn't wish to get into what would ultimately uh, become a... Uh, self-righteous argument over how my childhood experience somehow means that I don't walk the Christian walk. This is deeply offensive to me. But as I thought about this, I I began to feel uh, a little bit better. And in fact, I began to feel quite justified in some ways. Of course, my story can't be published as lived. It was hard enough to live. Why would I want someone to experience it vicariously? So by not arguing with them, but by determining to be gentle in my heart, instead of writing to my grown children, I thought perhaps my story could be written to my young grandchildren. By intentionally writing to that audience, it will of necessity change. Uh, And yet, in the changing, it will maintain its integrity, a a G version, so to speak. And out of that, I might learn more humility and and possibly reach a, a larger audience. And besides, for anyone who's interested, I can read you the director's cut. So, by God's grace, I am handling a disagreement in a godly way, not in a worldly way. In today's text, the Apostle Paul shows us how to handle controversies and disagreements in a godly way. He tells us the kind of disagreements that should and should not be allowed. Paul is unambiguous. Read with me uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
Uh, we'll be looking at just a few verses today, 23 through 26. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, apt to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, it is true that some people read this text as if to say that Christians are not to ever become involved in controversies and disagreements. That is not what the apostle is saying, not at all. Reading that way only leads to one thing, and that is sweeping issues under the rug and having uh, and maintaining this sense of external peace that only breeds an internal uh, division. In fact, sometimes that division can be so seething that it threatens to split churches. One sees that in the book of Corinth. One sees that in other places as well. I mean, just think of what happened when uh, Paul and, and Peter came face to face in that uh, enormous event that we read about in Galatians. So as we look at this, when we look at 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, 19, uh, it says, there must indeed be controversies among you in order that those who are approved might be made manifest. In other words, how do you know who can handle a controversy if you've never had any controversies to handle? And so the Apostle Paul is not saying at all, that there are no controversies that we uh, should not become involved in, that there are those that we, that we should. Actually, in fact, we should be grateful for some of the great controversies. Uh, and one of the hymns that we enjoy is, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That, in fact, stemmed directly from a debate that Martin Luther was having with others about the doctrine of justification uh, by faith. And we owe him, uh, the Lord through him, a debt of gratitude, not only for the song, but for this understanding that we are justified by faith. We are not justified by works. Now, uh, Paul is telling Timothy there are two kinds of, of controversies or difficulties, arguments that you want to stay away from. They're ones that are stupid and the ones that are senseless. He says, have nothing to do with them. Now, of course, to answer the question of Paul's meaning, we, we have to first ask another question, and that is, what makes a question stupid? Those of you who have sat under my teaching know experientially and know verbally that I do not believe that there is such a thing as a stupid question, except for as I'll explain here. And so then we have to ask this other question, what, is it, what, is it, what does stupid mean? So we've got to do a little homework before we can figure out what Paul is talking about. 
So the word translated stupid is the Greek word uh, moros, which is where we get our word moron from. That's exactly where we get it from. And the thing is, though, in English, the word moron revolves around intellect, intellectual capability. It's talking about how smart or not smart you are. And that's not at all what the Greek and the Hebrew mean when they use this word, even though it's come to English in this way. Greek and Hebrew terms uh, are more along the lines of what Sophocles says. Sophocles said that moros means to be acting under the influence of one's desire. And then you have Politus, who tells us that it represents the thought processes that dominate a person. In other words, while we think of it as intellect, the Greeks and the Hebrews saw it as the lack of wisdom. One can be incredibly brilliant intellectually and stupid at the same time as it relates to wisdom. The Bible gives us a clue as to what Paul is talking about here in uh, Luke 20. We were in Luke 22 this morning, uh, a couple of chapters earlier, Luke 20, 27 through uh, 40, we're told a story. It's about an encounter between the Sadducees and, and Jesus. So they tell him that once there was a family with seven brothers, and a woman married one, and, but the brother died before they could have children. And so she married the next brother in order to produce an heir. And he died and so forth and so on until she had married all seven. And finally, the seventh one uh, died with no heir. At the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? Now, I look at that and I think uh, thoughts that, how is this meaningful uh, to me? I believe that the question has some merit in terms of if it's restated. Perhaps it could be restated as what kind of relationships will we have in glory? Uh, Jesus, of course, answers in such a brilliant way that they're able to un not answer him, not return an answer. But the point is, uh, if not husband and wives, what about parents and and children, what about deep, close, uh, personal friends that we have? These questions are, at least to me, not trivial. Even though they may not be answerable, pursuing them might lead a greater understanding of God and heaven and relationships in eternity. That's not, the question itself is not what makes it stupid. That's not why it's a stupid question. Why is it a stupid question? You have to read the first verse, which I didn't. But if you look at the beginning of that passage, you're talking about Sadducees. Now, if I need to remind you, perhaps you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, I'm fixing to tell you the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. In other words, this was entirely designed to show how foolish the resurrection was and by implication how foolish Jesus was. 
So it wasn't a question, really. It was a statement. They did not expect an answer. They didn't even want an answer. They wanted everybody to go, how stupid, and bring people over to their position. Now, if I was preaching on that text, I would go into Jesus' answer. But suffice it to say that they didn't ask him any questions after after that. He took care of that. They wanted to shame him, make him feel foolish. Jesus didn't fall for it at all. Those are the kinds of controversies that the Apostle Paul is calling foolish, moronic debates. He says, have nothing to do with them. Just don't, don't do it. The point is this that I'm making now, and that is it's not the nature of it's not the question itself that makes a controversy stupid. It's the motivation, it's the intent behind it. Now, the second word that Paul uses here is senseless. Now, this word does actually have to do with intellect, but not the kind of intellect that we think about. We think maybe of intellect in terms of IQ, well, they didn't think of IQ back then. They didn't care about that at all. What they were concerned with was education. So what we're talking about here, this word has the notion of ignorance involved with it. Ignorance doesn't mean stupid. Ignorant doesn't mean dull. It just simply means, I don't know. It's, uh, it's something that that's what we have here. And there are questions that are basically unsolvable. There are things that we do not have enough information to make a determined stand about. It doesn't mean you can't think about them. I love wrestling with questions like that because it's the same way when I do any kind of relationship uh, counseling when it comes to conflict resolution. You have to come up with 10 solutions to one problem stated in a single sentence. Why? Because by number well, for some couples, they're done by number two. You know, you see, you get this one or, or this one, right? So when you make 10 by six or seven, it starts getting a little goofy. But when it gets goofy, then your mind starts thinking outside the box. And once your mind is thinking outside of the box, you come up with creative answers. And so it's not a problem to think about these things. What the problem is, is when you come to a conclusion, then you say, I am right. This is the way it is. You must believe as I do. Well, then, of course, that's nonsense. That's now you've you've made it a senseless and a, a pointless thing. So I'm going to let me get real, real here. So take, for example, baptism. Baptism is one of the most important things that we can discuss. It's one of only two sacraments that the uh, Protestant church at large holds to, uh, the other being communion, which we celebrate weekly. Jesus commanded his followers in Matthew 28, 19, he said, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke twenty-two nineteen, we hear, uh, do this in remembrance of me. So baptism is no small thing. 
However, the notion of baptism was so controversial, it remains so, and always has been so, that when the Bible was translated into English, they did not translate the word. Every time you say baptism, you're saying a Greek word that they decided, because of the controversies, not to translate. Instead, what they did was they transliterated it. So they took the Greek letters, put them into English letters, and said, there you have it. You figure it out. That's the way they did it. And it's really simple why they did it that way. It's because the mode of baptism has been argued ad infinitum since the early church. People argue, they fight, they split over this. Some go so far as to say that if you don't accept my baptism in my way, you're not even a believer. Wow. The anger over this and the arrogant certainty that some have that they are right and proudly proclaim, I can prove this. I can prove that they were immersed. I can prove that they were sprinkled. I can prove that they were poured. Hot debate, right? <laughs> Yet while the most compelling, and so I'll give you my position here because I'm I firmly believe this. The most compelling mode of baptism is, in fact, uh, from a theological, linguistic, and sociocultural perspective, immersion, and that's our practice here. Am I going to break fellowship with someone who doesn't believe that? Are you kidding me? Am I going to separate myself from someone else over a symbol? I mean, my mind immediately goes to this African proverb, which I love so much. I showed you the moon, and all you saw was the end of my finger. Baptism is a symbol. It is a symbol. We must never allow the symbol to become the truth. When we put too much emphasis on the symbol, oh, you didn't do it the right way. It has to be this way. When we do that, then we make the symbol more important than the reality that is behind it. And that's what makes a debate senseless and futile. We enjoy fellowship. Why? Because we have all, each one of us, been baptized into the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ. If you have not been baptized by the Spirit into the body of the Christ, you're not a believer. What does that have to do with mode in terms of fellowship, in terms of us maintaining fellowship with one another? We enjoy fellowship because of an outward expression or because of an inward reality. Think about it. The Spirit of God is living in you when you trusted Christ as your Savior. That's what matters. That's what matters. The foolishness of the argument is because it is no longer about true theology, 
as Sophocles argued, it is about internal desires and passions. You must do it the way I do it. No. I, I will do what I believe the Bible teaches, as will you. But to demand that of others when it comes to something that is not a reality internally, but, you know, do we use... Well, I could go on about how we do things. And when I say we, I mean the church at large. But we need to move on. So, what about controversies and disagreements that we should discuss? What about the attacks on vital doctrines and questions on proper Christian responses to a variety of social issues or how a particular doctrine is being taught and played out in the congregation. Paul gives us five things. The first one is a, is a negative. I mean, but it's a negative that's actually really quite positive. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. The servant of the Lord is any Christian. It, you are me, okay? But there are some, like Timothy, whose leadership has a broader influence than many others. And, and what Paul is saying is, Timothy, you cannot be argumentative. You cannot be belligerent. The Lord's servant, as Paul says, is, is, is not out to win arguments, not out to, for argument's sake, not out to crush the opposition, not to silence dissent through... Uh, quarreling, rather to encourage discussion. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's examine this together. What does Scripture say? And that never involves name-calling and, and put-downs and certainly rants or diatribes or anything like that. So we're not to be argumentative. We're not to be belligerent. So what are we to be? First, we're to be kind to everyone. You know, no matter if it's a non-believer who's upset with you about an issue or somebody who has an axe to grind, uh, even in the church, or even if it's a, a difficult person who simply is trying to make, you know, trying to push your buttons, we're to be kind. Our response is to be kind. A good English translation, I think, would be gentle here as well. Someone who's approachable. Before I got to uh, Dallas Seminary the first time, because I just uh, just went there again, but in the uh, in 1981, I was quite taken with one of the professors there. And uh, if I said his name, most of you would know, although he's passed on now. I had then, and and to this day, have a deep respect for his knowledge of Scripture, but. but once I asked him a question, and his response was so uh, harsh that I, n I never asked him another question. I didn't. Weak on my part, maybe. A bad day for him, you know, perhaps. But at least for that moment, at least for that moment, uh, he was not gentle. And the Lord calls us to be gentle. Second, the Lord's servant is to be an apt teacher. That is, to be able to skillfully, as he's mentioned, divide the word of uh, truth. That is, deal with the facts of Scripture. 
push and pull, and everything revolves around Scripture. This is, this is our anchor. Obviously, it's the Spirit illuminating what we read, but it's the Word of God that allows us to know the particulars beyond what we can see through uh, creation. And we're to not make things up, that we're to accurately speak as Scripture uh, speaks. Third, the servant must be forbearing, and this is such a great word. It means to remain calm, uh, unruffled, and not respond in kind to uh, uh, people. Now, this, as you all know, and if you don't know this, see me after, and we'll have a conversation about it, is that when you are attacked by someone, you want to attack back, <laughs> you want to strike back, and while we may be, based on personality or training, very good at keeping our cool, there are things that will get you. And uh, when that happens, uh, willpower alone is insufficient uh, to handle that kind of uh, pressure. It's not willpower that does it, but it's divine aid. And that's where this, it, it, we, we call upon the Lord for his grace and his mercy in order to forbear in some situations because they're, they're beyond us. I, I, I would imagine if I were able to talk to each one of you long enough, there's probably a button or two that as soon as that thing got hit, you would be up here uh, right away. And, and so that is the kind of thing that requires divine aid and inward reliance on uh, God and a calling for help at that point. Fourth, Paul sums it up this way by saying what he does is he, he uh, to correct your opponents with gentleness. Now, I used the word gentle before when I said that would be a good translation there. The word here is really meekness. And unfortunately in, well, it's not, it's just not an exact match to say that meek and gentle are the same thing uh, because they're, they're not. Meekness does not, uh, in, in fact, meekness has become a, uh, a value or a virtue, rather, I should say, that has been almost discarded in the West because it has become associated with weakness. And we don't want to appear uh, weak. But that's what this word has to do with is that while being uh, placed in a position of seeming weakness, one's strength and power still remain. So the way you need to think of this is uh, the lion tamer, right? That would be like the classic example. When the lion tamer puts his head in the mouth of the lion, we are in no way saying that the lion does not have the capability of doing whatever lions do when you put your head in their mouth, right? What we're saying is, is that the lion at that point is being meek. That's what meekness means. So it's strength under control. It's this kind of strength that allows us to control through the Spirit of God our destructive instincts, which we have so many, 
of and that do damage to our ability to live in harmony with others. Uh, meekness is something that allows us to be able to not take things personally such that it immediately cause, causes anger. In fact, the King James, if you have that, you already know it's meek because it says, in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. Now, I like that translation because it shows uh, what error does to us. And it makes us stubborn, it makes us arrogant, and it, it causes us to become our own enemies. It, it causes us to uh, be our own stumbling uh, block. And, and here's the truth of this. Until we change ourselves, uh, we're never going to solve any controversy. And the only person that you or I can change is, is you, you. You're the only one with that power through the strength of the Holy Spirit in making, in making that happen. And so now we come to the last and in some ways the most important point where he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So in controversy, if you're in controversy uh, with someone, if there's something going on in your life right now that's causing you uh, anger or anxiety or frustration because of a disagreement, you need to keep at the forefront of your mind that in that there are always divine possibilities. In this, and then Paul tells us, is this three-step. The first step is that God might grant them repentance. And I just, uh, one could have a whole entire message on this, but that it's remarkable that repentance is not something that the person does. It's something that God enables them to do. So this is one of the graces of God to us is the ability to even repent. And repentance doesn't simply mean saying you're sorry. We see this all the time. Oh, I'm sorry. And deeply sorry. My heart is broken because I hit you. Um, Okay, three months later, you hit him again. That's, that's, That's just being sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is a military term. It means about face. You're going one way. You need to go the other way. And your feelings about that, I think, are important, but they're not central. What's central is you change your behavior. And God may allow that for you. God grants repentance. I mean, what we're, when we're in a struggle like that, we have many things. We're more concerned about the urgency of it. And so sometimes we, we take emotional shortcuts, which we shouldn't. The second step is, is clear as well. With repentance comes a knowledge of the truth. Do you know how you can tell someone's repented? I, and I, it's, it's, it's not necessarily because of their behavior change, which is re- required, okay? We get that. People can change their behavior for all manner of reasons. But the real 
truth of it comes is when they begin to agree with Scripture. They begin to agree with the truth of God about what God says about them. They accept it. They know it to be true. And though it may involve painful adjustments on their part, they're committed to following it. And finally, uh, the third step results from repentance and coming to know the truth. And that is in repenting and coming to know the truth, guess what you're able to do? Now you're able to escape the snare of the devil. Now I want you to notice something carefully here. You're able to escape the snare. Now this isn't don't have the wrong picture in your mind. The picture is not you going through the forest and saying, oh, I see that snare. Avoid that snare of the devil. Look at the text. These are people who have already been caught. This meaning here is that you, ensnared by the devil, are able to escape. It's a way of escaping what the devil's snare has done. And his traps are always designed to destroy, wreck, ruin, harm, and hurt. And this is where many of us have been. Some may even be. And although some of us want to argue and we want to fight, When the Spirit of God makes his abode in your heart, he's able to give uh, to us a spirit of gentleness and meekness. And I forget the name of another professor at seminary who was immensely approachable. Stanley Toussaint is who I'm thinking of, but I can't say it with certainty. But one of the lessons that was taught by this professor, I'll just never forget. It's been a life thing for me since the early 80s, and that is this. Don't say anything about anyone or about anything unless you can answer yes to three questions. And those questions are, and this echoes to the very beginning of of this message, is it true? In the first answer has to be yes to it's true. The second answer, there are things that are true that you know, but is it necessary? Must you share this information with that person and why? What's behind that? Is it true? Is it necessary? And finally, if it is true and if it is necessary, is it kind? Are you presenting it in a kind way? Obeying scripture by being kind and forbearing, a gentle teacher will allow you to save yourself and perhaps others from the devil's snare and perhaps allow you to see some of the snares that you haven't fallen into. And as a byproduct, I suppose, it, it may allow you to get your book published. <laughs> Father, we are so grateful. Wow, I just... What a mess. What a mess some of us 
have made or would have made of our lives were it not for your gentleness and your kindness, your meekness. Wow, strength under control. When I think of, Lord, yes, you could get rid of all sin. You could just do it with a snap of your finger and then we'd, we'd all be gone. I uh, thank you that you have delivered us from the evil one. Mm, not simply before salvation, but if we've ever needed to repent and return, you've delivered us from his snares after salvation. We thank you that you are ever watchful and caring and loving. And we depend on you for everything. Everything. We thank you. We praise you through Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who gave his life that we might live. Amen.